Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 this evening. Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to start in the first verse and read down through verse 8. Verse 8 is the one we want to focus on, but uh, uh, I just like the whole thing, so I'm going to read it. Verse 1. The former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had, also, whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that means his crucifixion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, if you want the uh, the notes from that uh, the forty day lessons that uh, Jesus gave them, all you have to do is read the the epistles or the letters of Paul. You'll find that there were the things that he told them as well as things that they hadn't yet learned. Verse four: And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, You have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, folks, please realize that in John chapter 20, Jesus has already appeared to them after his resurrection, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. We know a change occurred. If you compare the last part of uh, Luke's account with uh, with John, you'll find out they returned with great joy. There was a change that was made. Now they're not behind closed doors anymore. Luke 24, 52 said they returned again with great joy and were openly in the temple praising God. Well, where in John chapter 20, they had been behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Now they're out in the temple. There's been a change in their nature. That change in their nature was salvation. So even though they're saved, now please notice this. I think it explains the way that a lot of the modern day church operates. Even though they're saved, even though they've got the life of God in them, even though there's been a change in their nature, they're still worried about natural things. They're thinking that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They're thinking about politics. They're thinking about governmental issues. They're thinking about getting out from under the tax burden of the Romans and out from under their control and whatever other areas of control they're exercising. That's their concern. Which shows us you can be saved... You can have the life of God in you. You can love God with all your heart and still be focused on the wrong things. Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom. Jesus came to bring us a spiritual kingdom, and they're worried about natural things. Well, how does Jesus answer that? Does Jesus answer by saying, well, yeah, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have my guy in office before the end of the year. Which I'm sure would, would please if Jesus said something like that today, would please a lot of Christians now. But it's not about natural, political, or governmental things. Jesus answered and said, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. In other words, he's saying, that's only going to happen when I return for the church. Or return with the church at the end of the tribulation period. That's when the the restoration of the kingdom is going to take place again. Folks, the idea that some people have, it used to be called kingdom theology. I don't know what it's called now. People just talk about it rather than put a name on it. But the idea that the church is going to get better and better and better and take the world over and change the society and change the culture and all this kind of stuff, that's hogwash. The Bible says men will get worse and worse in the last days. Well, if men get worse and worse, and the majority of people, at least in our country, are unsaved, then how is society going to get better? He said, it's not up, not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but here's the key. But you shall receive power 
In other words, quit worrying about the politics, quit worrying about the government, quit worrying about the other things that we can get so wound up in. And, and folks, listen, if anybody has an has a inclination to get political, that's me. I see go, things going on, it makes me want to pull my hair out. I have to quit watching TV, at least some TV. I quit, have to quit listening to some things on the radio. I can't, it just drives me nuts to see half the world go stupid. But notice what Jesus said the answer was. But you shall receive power. In other words, quit fighting to change the government. Realize that you've got power over anything and everything that comes down the road. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, he's, reading, he's speaking this to people in John chapter 20 that he said receive the Holy Ghost. That he breathed on and said receive the Holy Ghost. Now, we know the change in their nature in John chapter 20 took place. That change had to be salvation. That's when they were born again. Now he's talking about a second experience of, that he calls being baptized in the Holy Ghost. So you can receive the Holy Ghost in salvation, which Jesus said in John chapter 4 was like a well of water on the inside of you. Well, who does the well benefit? The well benefits the owner of the well. But then he said in John chapter 7, there was a second experience with the Holy Ghost that would be like rivers of living water flowing out from your innermost belly or your innermost being. So he's talking about salvation. John chapter 20, that's when they were born again. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he's talking about a second experience with the Holy Ghost, and that is being filled or being baptized with the Holy Ghost. And notice what he said. Here's the whole purpose. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. And you shall be witnesses unto me. Please notice he did not say, and you shall go witnessing. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Not go witnessing, but you shall be witnesses unto me. In other words, the power changes you. The power does something and has changes, makes a change or affects you in a great way so that other people witness the fact that Jesus is alive. Now he tells them where it's going to work. He says, you'll be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's a, a spreading out geographical territory. You'll be witnesses at home. You'll be witnesses the further away you get and the further away you get and the further away you get. Basically, you'll be witnesses wherever you go because the Holy Ghost is in you. Now, how many of you have been baptized in the Holy Ghost? The Bible says the evidence, the way we know. Same thing that happened with the Jews in Acts chapter 2. They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Acts chapter 10 tells us the same experience happened with the Gentiles. The Jews that went with Peter down to Cornelius' house were astonished because on the Gentiles was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost before they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So the same evidence for the Jews was the evidence for the Gentiles, which means it's the same evidence today. If we have the same experience with the Holy Ghost today, we'll have the same evidence today, which is speaking in tongues. Now, don't get me wrong. He said power was the purpose. Tongues is not the power, but it's the entry to the power of God. Because the tongues is the means whereby you're edified. The Bible said he that speaketh an unknown tongue edifies himself. That means you build yourself up spiritually. That means it brings spiritual strength to you to operate in the power of God. The purpose of the Holy Ghost is not tongues. Although there's a great benefit to speaking in tongues, you speak directly to God. You're speaking divine secrets directly with heaven. But the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is power. 
power to be witnesses. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Now, I just asked how many of you were filled with the Holy Ghost, have spoken with tongues, you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, whatever term you want to use in that. And many of you raised your hand. I didn't look around the room real carefully to see if it was everybody, but many or maybe even most of us have experienced that, right? Who's got the power? People are afraid to lift their hands on that one, aren't they? The Bible says if you've been baptized in the Holy Ghost, you've got power. Now, why do we shy away from that? It's a natural thing. Why do we shy away from that? Because we don't, don't want to be on the spot for the power. Thoughts like, well, what if the power doesn't work in me? But folks, realize that Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's speaking with the same surety, the same assurance, with the same clarity as when he said in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life or eternal life. Now, is there anybody that's ever believed in Jesus, ever called on his name, ever confessed him as Lord and Savior, and not be saved? Not if Jesus told us the truth. So is there anybody that's ever been filled with the Holy Ghost that didn't get the power? Not if Jesus told us the truth. The power of the Holy Ghost is given to us to be an effective witness. Now, what's a witness? Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Let's see what a witness is. John is speaking to the churches. He's writing his introduction to the churches. You remember the story about how John was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the uh, island of Patmos where he had been exiled to. And notice, we'll start reading in uh, verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. He's telling who he's ri- who's doing the writing and who's he writing to. John is the author. That's the apostle John, the one that walked with Jesus here on the earth. And he says, grace be unto you, speaking to the seven churches. Well, if it belongs to those churches, it belongs to us as our church too. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Now, he's talking about Jesus, and that pretty much covers all of time, which is and was and is to come. That means past, present, and future. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. But please notice it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 that Jesus was the faithful witness. What did he witness? A witness is someone that gives testimony or somebody that testifies of something that they know. You know as well as I do that if you go in court and you you go to the witness stand, they're going to make you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In other words, you've got to tell them the truth and tell them everything that you know, everything related to the story. Can't leave anything out. So we know that a witness is expected to tell everything that they have or give everything that they have as far as the knowledge of the, the situation at hand, right? So if Jesus is a faithful witness, he had to tell us everything that was relevant to what he was bringing witness to. Now, when you're giving testimony on the witness stand, you're under oath, so you're sworn to the truth. And they'll ask you what you know. If you tell them what you think, that's not admissible in court. Because your thinking could be wrong. 
If you tell them what somebody else told you, that's not admissible in court because that's third-party evidence. Hearsay is what it's called. So you have to tell just what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've experienced for yourself. That's what a witness is required to do in a court of law. Would the faithful witness be required anything? uh, Would there be any less requirement for him regarding what Jesus was sent to the earth to testify or to witness to? Of course not. Well, what was he sent to be a witness of? God and the things of God. Jesus is the faithful witness. And Jesus is saying in John in uh, Acts chapter one and verse eight. I'm giving you power so that you can be witnesses too. Now think about what this means. Do you remember we've, uh, we just concluded recently uh, the, uh, the, uh, study on the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14, 14, 15, and 16, really, Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples. And they're, they're just beside themselves. Because Jesus is saying he's going away. Now they're, he's telling them again and again that he's going away to the Father and they can't grasp that. They just can't grasp that. I, I've said before, and it might be good to repeat it here. Jewish theology, Jewish theology has no mention of heaven. Jews don't understand heaven. Jews don't understand the afterlife or a spirit realm as we do. We only know it because of what the Bible tells us in the New Testament. They don't live by the New Testament. They live by the Old Testament. That's why when Jesus came, when people were claiming for him to be the Messiah, you know, some people were were declaring him to be the Messiah. Some people wanted to take him and force him, uh, take him by force to make him a king. Jesus would always go away because the only thing the Jews could ever relate to, and you saw it right here in Acts chapter 1, is Israel being a nation on their own and dominating the rest of the world. That's what belonged to them through the blessing of Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham. And so that's the only thing that they looked for. So when Jesus talked about his kingdom not being of this earth, they were scratching their heads. Well, what kingdom is there if there's not one of this earth? So when Jesus is telling his disciples at the Last Supper, I'm leaving to go to the Father, they couldn't comprehend that. They've been with him for three years. They've seen signs and wonders and miracles. They've heard him preach about God. They've heard people him tell people about his Father. Every time he claimed to be one with his father, the Jews tried to kill him. They've witnessed that over and over and over again. But that just doesn't compute with them. It still doesn't compute. You talk to a Jew today about heaven, they don't know what you're talking about. If they're acquainted with the law of Moses, if they're acquainted with Judaism in its original form, they don't know anything about heaven. Because Judaism has nothing to do with heaven. Judaism has to do with the blessings of God here on the earth through Abraham. So when Jesus is talking about going to the Father, the only thing they hear is that he's going away. He even said that to the Jews, the religious leaders in the temple. He said, I'm going away. And they said, where is he going? Is he leaving town? Jesus is talking about leaving this earth. He's talking about leaving this life. And they're thinking, well, where is he going to go? He can't be the Messiah because the Messiah doesn't go anywhere. They didn't understand. So when Jesus is telling his disciples at the Last Supper, I'm going away to the Father, they are beside themselves. Where are you going? We want to go too. Jesus says, you can't go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And they say, well, but we don't understand. How does this make sense? This doesn't make sense. Jesus then says, in the middle of their grief, in the middle of them being beside themselves, he says, it's better for you that I go away. Turn with me to John chapter 14. Let's look at some of this. Now, with with this in mind, with the things that we've just said in mind, let me ask you a question. How, from their standpoint... Could it be possible for it to be better for him to go away? He's the miracle worker. He's the one that's provided for them. These guys have left their homes. They've left their businesses. 
He's been their sole means of support for three years, or the better part of three years. Not all of them started three years uh, ago with him, but some of them did. How could it possibly be better for them? John chapter 14. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. They didn't, by the way. They believed in God, meaning that God is up there, God is real, God lives. But they didn't believe in Jesus as being God. So he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I cannot read this verse of Scripture without pointing this out. I grew up in the Baptist church, denominational, fundamental denomination, with the idea that Jesus is gone from the earth when he was crucified, raised from the dead, and then went directly to heaven after a few days, short period of time, went to heaven, and ever since then he's been building houses. Because when you get to heaven, he's going to have a wonderful mansion for you. Now, with trillions of angels... Hundreds of millions of angels. I don't know exactly how many there are. But the Bible says there's more than, than you can count. You remember when trillion was a big word? Big number? <laughs> well, let's just assume there are trillions of angels. Jesus has to hammer nails? Seriously? That's not what this means. The word mansion means abiding place. It's talking about a place with God. It's not talking about a house. In my father's house are many abiding places. The word literally is abode. There are many abiding places. In other words, he's saying there's room for everybody. In my father's house, there's room for everybody. Now, he didn't elaborate to say Jews and Gentiles both, but we know that that's the way it turned out. They wouldn't have understood that either. In my father's house are many abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, what is that place that you're preparing, Jesus? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Please notice he did not say that where I am going you will be also. He's going to the Father. He's going to heaven. He's not saying, I'm preparing a place for you so you can go to heaven too. Some of us might like that, get saved and go to heaven. Immediately. I can see some real advantages to that especially when the devil's punching your clock down here on the earth, or trying to at least. No, he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can have the same relationship with God that I have now. Hello? And whether I go, in other words, he says, and you know where I'm going, and you know the way to get there. How in the world are they going to know that? Because he's told them, I'm going to the Father. They know that God lives in heaven. He's saying, I'm going to the Father, and he's already clearly explained to them that he's going to Jerusalem even before he ever got to town. He explained, I'm going to Jerusalem on the Mount of Transfiguration. From that point forward, Luke says, he clearly began to teach them that he was going to Jerusalem, would be crucified and and raised again after three days. That's how they knew. They knew because he had told them plainly. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He said, you know where I'm going. I'm going to the Father. The way to get there, you know that too. I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to be raised again after three days. That's why when he was raised again from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and upbraided them for their unbelief. He said, why didn't you believe what I told you? Well, I'm not going to be too hard on them because that would be a hard pill to swallow, I guess. Easier for us looking back, knowing that it already has occurred, 
than them having to experience it for themselves after watching him die. But then Thomas said, "Here, this shows the attitude of the apostles. He wasn't alone. He's just the one that gets singled out. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know your way? We don't know anything. You think just because you told us we know something? <laughs> they should have. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, he's saying it's only through my death, my crucifixion, and my resurrection that anybody can come into the place that I'm going, which is to the Father. If you had known me, verse 7, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth, from this time forward, you know him and have seen him. Why is he saying from this time forward? Because it's just a couple hours before he's taken captive. And the the crucifixion process or experience begins. From this point forward, you know the Father yourself. Why? Because in chapter 17, he prays that we would be one with the Father just like he's one with the Father. That's what he's talking about. This has a real meaning, folks. This is not just religious poetry stuff. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. We'd be satisfied if you'd just show us the Father. Jesus answers and says... Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Stop right there. Remember our first question? What was Jesus the faithful witness of? Right here, Jesus said he's been the faithful witness to show them the Father. He's been a witness of God. He's been a witness of the character of God. He's been a witness of the love of God. He's been a witness of God's mercy. He's been a witness of God's power. He's been a witness of God's delivering power as well as healing power. He's been a witness of signs and wonders and miracles. All these things are related to showing them the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Notice verse 10. He said, believest thou not that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Don't you believe this, Thomas? Now, he's not just talking to Thomas. He's talking to the whole group. He realizes Thomas was just the, the brave one to speak up. Everybody else is probably in the same boat, most of them at least. So he said, don't you believe that I am in the Father? Don't you believe that God and I are connected? Don't you believe me when I've been saying all this time for the last several years that the Father and I are one? Don't you realize that that means that I am God in the flesh? That's what he's saying. Don't you realize that? Don't you believe that to be true? Well, why should they believe that? Notice what he says. He says, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. In other words, he's saying, don't you realize that the words that I've spoken, the words that have just knocked you on your your rear end, don't you realize that the things that have amazed you and have astonished you, don't you realize that those were words that came from heaven, not, not the words of man? Then he goes further and he says, the Father in me, but the Father in me that, that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. He mentions two things that he was a witness of God in. The words that he spoke and the works, meaning the signs and wonders and miracles that he did. Don't you believe me? After hearing the words that I spoke, after seeing the works that I did, don't you believe that God and I are connected? How could I do these things except God and I are one? That's what he's saying. Notice the next verse. Believe me, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. He says, if you can't take my word for it, if you can't look back at the things that I've taught you and the, the impact that it's made on your life, for, for goodness sakes, at least believe for, because of the signs and the wonders and the miracles you've seen. 
What does that tell us about being a witness? God doesn't expect his people to be witnesses without power. If Jesus had just said, well, the word should have convinced you. And that was it. Then people could have claimed that he was nothing more than one of the prophets. At best, just one of the prophets. Because there's a number of the prophets in the Old Testament, people that we have books written by, that they didn't do any miracles. Yet they were speaking the words of God. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, believe me for the works, the word's sake, because you have to know, you have to realize that those words didn't come from a man. They had to come from God. There were things that I said to you that man cannot know. That man cannot understand. That's why he turned the, the Jewish leaders and the rabbis on their ears when they would question him. It got to the point where the chief priest quit going to Jesus and asking questions. Because he would turn them upside down with the answers every time. He was baffling them at 12 years of age. When he was left behind in the temple. He was asking them questions they couldn't answer. And he was answering questions that they couldn't, couldn't even comprehend where those answers came from. At 12. I'm guessing he knew more at 30. But he didn't stop with just the words. The words could have been enough. The words could have been enough proof. But he said, if you can't believe for the words, then believe me for the very work's sake. Jesus said another place where the Jews were concerned after he turned away from the Jews. Part of his ministry was to the Jews, and then he went to the Gentiles. Pulled away from the Jews altogether after they rejected him once and for all. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if I had not done the works that no other man did, then the Jews wouldn't be responsible for rejecting me. If I had not done works that none other man has ever done, then they couldn't be held responsible. I wonder if God's changed his mind about that. Clearly, from Jesus' testimony, miracles, powerful works were a requirement for man to have a choice to believe in Jesus when Jesus was here on the earth. What's changed with God? The Bible says God never changes. Which means if he provided signs and wonders and mighty works, miracles and so forth, for people to have a choice to believe in Jesus being the Son of God while Jesus was here on the earth, why would he expect people to have less evidence to make their choice today? Now, Jesus is saying all these things just to try to get them, his disciples, the ones that are close to him, the ones that have been with him for three years, the ones that have been doing works right alongside of him. He's trying to get them to believe that he is the son of God. Isn't that amazing? That on the last night of Jesus' life here on the earth, the disciples really didn't get it. I feel bad when people leave the church. I feel bad when people have a chance to hear the word and reject it and, and go to something else. But after three years of Jesus saying everything that he said, and John said if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. We've got just a sample of what he said and a sample of what he did. And after three years, side by side with these guys, day after day after day, they still didn't get it. I shouldn't feel so bad. You'd think the Son of God would have been able to convince everybody he came in contact with. But he didn't. 
Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now notice verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And greater works than, than the ones that I do. He'll do the same works, but even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto the Father. That's what he used to, as an explanation that it's better for him, for them, for him to go away. He said, if I don't go away, I can't send the comforter. Who is the comforter? The comforter is the Holy Ghost that Acts 1-8 is talking about. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. How did the disciples, the apostles, after they were filled with the Holy Ghost, how did they bear witness of Jesus? Turn back with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, they were 120 of them were in the, the upper room. The Holy Ghost was poured out upon them. They began to speak with tongues. It spilled out over into the street. People heard them speak in their own languages. Now, it doesn't say they did speak their own languages. It said they heard them speak in their languages. So we don't. there was a miracle that took place. We don't know if the miracle was that they spoke languages they didn't know or if the miracle was that people heard them speaking in tongues as if it was in their own language. I've seen that happen over and over again. I was with Brother Hagin a number of times where uh, somebody would come up to him after the service and said, you were speaking German or you were speaking Spanish or you were speaking Portuguese in one case. And Brother Hagin just looked at me and he laughed. He'd say, you don't think I know that language, do you? Well, he was speaking in tongues as far as he was concerned, but they said that they heard him speak in their own language. Now, if I had known any of those languages, I'd been able to tell you whether or not he was really speaking those languages or if they just heard it. Sometimes the miracle happens in somebody's ear. Sometimes it happens in your mouth. Sometimes it happens in your ear. We don't know which one it was in the Acts uh, chapter 2, but a miracle occurred. They heard them speak in their own languages the wonderful works of God. Peter preaches about Jesus. 3,000 people get saved. Notice in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. So what are they doing? The apostles' doctrine means they're preaching or they're teaching. The word doctrine is literally the word teaching. So that means they spoke or preached or taught about Jesus and about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So it's telling us two things that happened right off the bat. They began to speak words given to them by God to help instruct people about Jesus. And they began to do signs and wonders. Are those not the two things that Jesus said that they ought to believe him for? In John chapter 14, the words and the works. Now you've got the apostles right off the bat speaking words and doing works. Verse 44, and all that believed were were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Chapter 3 tells us about the man at the beautiful gate of the temple that was healed. The crippled man that was healed by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. I don't know if it was a gift of healing. I don't know if it was working of miracles or maybe it was something else. But it was some manifestation of the Holy Ghost that came upon Peter and John and raised this guy up and healed him instantly right there in front of everybody as a result of the preaching that Peter did concerning why this man was healed due to the resurrection of Jesus, literally saying this is a witness or a testimony of Jesus' resurrection who has given man power to do the same works that he did. 5,000 people got saved. 
Acts chapter 4 tells us how they were called on the carpet by the Jewish council about this thing. And then they were let go and they prayed. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. You know what I like about this prayer? The first thing I like about this prayer is they don't talk about how big and bad and mean and and nasty the Jewish council were that beat them and all the bad things that happened. They said, you're God. Lord, you're God. That's a good way to start your prayer. The devil may be chasing you down the road, but God's still God. Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. Notice where their problem rates in their prayer. Way down on the list. They've been threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. They beat them before they threatened them. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. They've got their priorities in line, folks. They don't ask forgiveness for not preaching the word anymore because they've been beaten and threatened. They said, Lord, give us boldness to speak your word. By stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. What are they asking for? They're saying, give us proof. Make us witnesses with power. Just like Jesus said we would be. Now, let me ask you a question. Since they've already seen power at work, Acts chapter 2, verse 44, somewhere around there, talks about the the great power. With great power, the apostles did uh, signs and wonders among the people. They've already seen the power. Acts chapter 3, the man was healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. Why are they still focusing on the power? Because it's not enough just to be filled with the Holy Ghost. It's not enough just to have an experience of power. You've got to focus on the power of God in you if it's going to work. I read a lot after Smith Wigglesworth. Nearly every sermon he preached talked about the power of God that works in us. Nearly every sermon he preached. Now, you'd think somebody that had such a handle on the power would move on to something else every now and then. Nope. He talked constantly. He preached constantly. He taught constantly. About the power of God. The excellency of the power of God in mankind. Because of Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead. He talked constantly about the power of the Holy Ghost. You know what Wigglesworth used to say? He used to say, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, power is there. Quit complaining that you don't have it. See, so many times, and he talked about this a lot too. He said, God says you've got power, yet you're relying on your feelings. You say, but I don't feel power. I don't feel powerful. I I feel so helpless. He said, the power is there. Quit talking about not having it.
That's what these guys seem to be praying about, isn't it? Lord, we've seen the power. That power got us in trouble. That power that got 5,000 people, that got one man healed, crippled man healed, got 5,000 people saved, got us beaten, and now we're being threatened by the same people that put Jesus to death. We're being threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Oh, woe is me. What are we going to do? No. We've been threatened by them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus, but we're not about to give this up. So give us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal. And keep doing this miracle stuff. Because the one thing that the Jewish council said, the one thing that kept them from putting Peter and John to death in Acts chapter 4 is that they said, well, we've got this crippled guy that's healed and we really can't say anything about that. We can't argue that. He was crippled. We all have seen him at that beautiful gate year after year after year. And now he's well and walking around and saying that the name of Jesus through these two guys did the work. How are we going to deal with that? Seeing this man stand before us, seeing this notable miracle which was done before us, we can say nothing. That's why we need the power. Because we need to provide proof. And that's what a witness does. A witness provides proof. He provides evidential proof. So that nobody can say anything about it. Now, if you think God's changed his attitude about that, let me tell you for a certainty, God still wants notable miracles to provide proof that Jesus is risen from the dead. I know that not only because the Bible says so, I know that because God never changes and that's what he once wanted. Now, Lord, grant the, behold the threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of, the, of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Folks, this is a prayer that this is the kind of prayer that works. Now, some people will tell you now that to pray for something like that is to pray against the will of God. Some people would tell you to pray something like that was would be to pray in arrogance. The very idea that you would expect God to use you in miracles today. Really? It doesn't say and when they prayed, the place was struck by lightning. It says there was an earthquake. The place was shaken where they were all, all gathered together. And notice the result. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now, wait a minute. I thought these guys were already filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. There is one baptism or one experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there's a lot of infillings, folks. There's a lot of renewals in the Holy Spirit. It's not a new experience. It's not another experience in the Holy Ghost. It's just a revival, a renewal, a re-energizing, if you will according to God's plan and purpose. So they were all filled with the Holy Ghost again and spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that, that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power, please notice that phrase, and with great power. What's great power? That tells me it's not your ordinary, average, everyday miracle. Great power is something outstanding. And with great power, gave the apostles witness. 
of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and grace, grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he, had, as he had need. Now, a lot of people make a big deal about this and talk about the Bible preaching communism. It does not. What happens in about 35 years from this point in time? The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and everything else. Everybody loses their possessions in a matter of 30-something years. So you can see why the Holy Ghost, God knowing this ahead of time, you can see why the Holy Ghost would prompt people to do things, that the, the, to sell properties that perhaps had been in their families for years and years and years. Why? Because they're going to lose it anyway. i got to tell you something, folks. I have a great desire. Let me tell you a personal desire I've got where financial goals are concerned. I have a great desire to amass a tremendous fortune. And for God to tell me just before Jesus comes back so I can spend every nickel of it. What good is having a retirement program if I'm raptured up into heaven? Now, it would be uh, imprudent. It would be unwise for me not to provide for my family until I know for sure when we're going. But I'm hopeful that God will give us enough, us being the church, me included, will give us enough of a spiritual sense of the times that we live in so that we don't go to heaven with a lot of money racked up in the banks, stored up in the banks or, or retirement accounts or wherever else that we could have used to get people saved. You remember Schindler, the last scene in Schindler's List? Liam Neeson plays Schindler, and he's looking around at the ring he's got and the car he's got, and he's saying, I could have sold that and gotten one more. This would have bought me four more people out of the hands of the Germans. Well, wouldn't it be a shame for that to be the condition of the church when we go up? I believe God's going to give us enough of a spiritual insight so that we'll know to use what we have. That's what's happening here. It's God giving them spiritual insight to use what they have for the good of the church rather than to lose it to the Romans. Uh, skip with me over to chapter 5, verse 12. Tells us about Ananias and Sapphira that fall dead in church. Verse 12, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. That's what they prayed for in chapter 4. Grant unto your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and the signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with great power or by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch and of the rest dared no man join himself to them that's what Ananias and Sapphira died for they were trying to buy themselves through their gift they were trying to buy themselves a place with the apostles well people learned their lesson on that one and no man dared join himself to them but the people magnified them and believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes both of men and women now if you'll notice in chapter uh, verse 12 and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch all the way down through the end of verse 14 is in parentheses. So let me go back and, and delete the parentheses part. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Verse 15, insomuch, these are the signs and wonders that were wrought, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one.
but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses. How were they witnesses? Through their words and through their works. And the Bible goes into great detail to tell us what those works were. Great power, signs and wonders, healings of the healing of the cripples. And then it gives us something here in, in verse 15 that's really kind of mind-boggling if you think about it. There were such great signs and wonders worked or wrought among the people that they had to bring the sick. They didn't have room for them anywhere except on the street. And they looked for Peter's shadow to over, over, pass over them. And they were healed by shadow. Now tell me anywhere in Jesus' ministry where anybody was healed by shadow. I personally believe, my personal opinion, you judge it for yourself. My personal opinion is this is one of the things that Jesus meant where he said, in greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. It's not greater in quality than anything Jesus did. Because Jesus healed the sick and he healed cripples. He healed every sickness, every manner of sickness and disease among the people. I don't think you can get greater in quality than what Jesus did. But it was done in a greater manner than anything we have record of in Jesus' ministry. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least... The shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. Now, the least tells me that people are hoping that he lays hands on them or touches them in some way or speaks to them, commands them to be well. But if not that, at least the shadow passing by gets the job done. I wonder how that worked. Peter gets up one day and preaches and says, all right, line everybody up outside. Get them out in the sunshine. We're going to have healing by shadow today. I don't believe that for a moment, folks. You know how I believe this happened? I believe the place was crowded wherever they would try to assemble. The place was so crowded that sick people had to stay outside. And Peter passed by and somebody got healed by shadow. And from that point forward, that became one of the methods. How could you plan for something like that? If God told Peter, okay, tomorrow I want you at a certain place at a certain time because I'm going to heal people through your shadow, do you not think the Bible would have given us evidence of that? Peter would have told, here's what happened. Well, sure it would. And the fact that it doesn't, we have to go as much by what the Bible doesn't say as what it does. The fact that the Bible doesn't tell us that that was the case indicates to me that it happened and they went, wow. We prayed for signs and wonders to be done in the name of the Holy Child Jesus and look what's happening now. And not only that, but demons were cast out of people. And notice how that worked. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now, folks, I don't know what every one means to you, but every one means nobody was left out to me. Now, Jesus said, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And now he's healing everybody through them. Has he changed his mind on that? At what point does Jesus change? Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. Which tells me if Jesus is behind this, which he said he was, 
and his will was to heal everyone that came to him in his ministry, which he did, and heal everyone in Jerusalem when the disciples were bearing witness by the power of the Holy Ghost, which they did, then why would he expect, would anybody expect that the plan of God has changed on healing for everyone today? Now, I know you can make all kinds of excuses for why people aren't healed. But I'm talking about the plan of God. I'm talking about the will of God, which is the number one question that people have, people that are sick have when it comes to healing. Is it God's will for me to be healed? And we see right here that since God never changes and Jesus never changes and God intended and instituted and Jesus accomplished healing for everyone through the church, not just through Jesus' ministry. A lot of people want to hang their hat on, well, Jesus was the Son of God, so he did things different than the church will do. They were healed, every one. That's the church. Well, your fallback position then has to be, well, yeah, but that was the apostles. And they did special things to prove that Jesus was alive. When in time did the church need to stop proving Jesus was alive? If the apostles had power to prove Jesus was alive, to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, but I've just got to persuade people through some other means, through words, enticing words of man's wisdom that Paul talked about, I want to redo. If that's the case, God did me wrong. I should have had the opportunity to live then. I should have had an opportunity to be one of the twelve. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yet the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, which means he's not going to give them something he doesn't give the church today. And if he does give them something, power included, that we can't have today, then we've got to tear a page out of the Bible. Because it makes the scripture that says God is no respecter of persons a lie. And if that scripture is a lie, how many others are lies too? It's an all or nothing thing for me, folks. Either the Bible is the complete and whole truth of God. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Or else we're left to our own devices to figure out what part's true and what part's not. Now, I know some churches are real good at that. They'll tell you what part's true and what part isn't. But I reject that notion. And I reject it based on the truth of the word, which says God never changes. I'm going to read verse 16 again. I love verse 16. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem. Can somebody tell me how many is a multitude? A lot of ways we could describe it, but is there any way to identify how big the crowd is? I would describe it as big crowd. But how many is a big crowd? Are we talking a thousand? Are we talking 5,000? They've already seen 5,000 people saved in Acts chapter 3. And they call this a multitude. The implication for me is that the Holy Ghost is inspiring Luke to say, use a word that tells us a whole lot of people. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about in Jerusalem, 
bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Folks, if God would heal every one of those people, but not heal everyone today, then he's unjust. He's not worthy of our service. Because he's not who he says he is. But oh, thank God he is who he says he is. That goes back to Hebrews eleven six 6 that we looked at this morning. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That he is who he says he is. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, if we apply that to healing, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God for healing must believe that he is who he says he is. And that he's a rewarder. That means a healer. For all those who diligently seek him. Hallelujah. Let's all stand to our feet and worship God for a moment. See what the Lord would have us to do. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, we worship you. We magnify your name. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that the Holy Ghost has empowered us. We have power. We declare according to the word of God, that we have power. We are endued with power from on high to be witnesses, witnesses of your mercy, witnesses of your goodness, witnesses of your healing power. Oh, thank you, Father, for giving us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the holy child, Jesus. The time is now, Father. We thank you. For healing miracles. We thank you for healing works. We thank you Father. For working in a great and mighty way. We wait upon you Father. For instruction of the Holy Ghost. That we might know. How to be effective witnesses. This night. In this place. Right now. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we worship you. We magnify your name. Jesus, we exalt you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Healer of all that are sick. Deliverer of all that are oppressed. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. We worship you, Father. We worship you, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. For healing our bodies. For delivering us. 
for taking our sickness and carrying our infirmities. Bearing our pains in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Who in here is in need of healing tonight? Everybody put your hands down so I can see the response to this. Who in here is in need of healing tonight? Raise your hand. All right. Keep your hands up. I want you to look around the room and see those that have their hands raised. And I want there to be two or three people to go lay hands on each one of these people, if you will, please. So just keep your hands up until there's a couple of people around you that lay hands on you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Once there's several people around you, you can put your hands down so that that way we can tell if there's still somebody that needs somebody to lay hands on them. Got enough people back there? Hallelujah. 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 Blessed be the name of Jesus. Now Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Are you a believer in the name of Jesus? Do you believe there's healing power in the name of Jesus? These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now let me ask you a question. Don't pray. Please don't pray yet. How could Jesus know that they would lay hands, that believers would lay hands on the sick and they'd recover if he wasn't already planning to give them power to heal the sick? That's what Acts 1-8 is all about. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. I want every one of you that are laying hands on somebody to realize. And if you need to say it within yourself, that's fine. You have power to be a witness of Jesus. These people that you're laying hands on need to see the witness that Jesus is alive as healer. And you're empowered to do that. I don't want anybody to pray, oh, God, please do something. Because he's already done something. I want you very simply. Very simply. Don't see how long you can pray. See how short you can pray. You're there to deliver the healing power of God that is resident within you because you're empowered by the Spirit of God. You're transferring it to other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? So here we go. In the name of Jesus, be healed. We minister the healing power of God to each and every one of these people. 
In Jesus' name, you don't have to repeat after me. Just let your heart agree with it. In the name of Jesus, we command each and every one of these people to be healed. Thank you, Father, for the power of the Holy Ghost. The greater one, the miracle worker, goes into each one of these persons in Jesus' precious name. Be healed now in Jesus' name. Now let's lift our hands and thank God because it's done. Well, I didn't feel anything, Pastor Mike. That's all the reason to praise him for it in faith. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you that miracles don't come because we feel them. Thank you that miracles come because we act in faith upon your word. Father, do a great work. Do a miracle work in each one of these people because we've acted in accordance to your word. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, that it's done. Thank you, Father, that it's done. It's not done because of a man. It's not done because of the special anointing on one person. It's done because you empowered your church, the body of Christ, with the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Father, that each and every one of these people are healed in Jesus' name. Now, if you had hands laid on you, say this after me. Healing is mine now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name. We thank you for obedience to your word, that it always brings results. Thank you, Father, that the greater one is at work in each and every one of these people's bodies, raising them up in the name of Jesus. Raising them up in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you that it's true for this congregation, just as it was true in Acts chapter 5, verse 16. That multitude, this crowd, they were healed, everyone. They were healed, everyone. They were healed, everyone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Hang on to that, folks. When the devil tells you, oh, you don't think something really happened. If it had been the healing power of God, if it had been something that was really miraculous, there would have been something special about it. Well, what was special about it is that we obeyed God's word. It's not with fanfare. It's not with flash. It's not with the sound of thunder. It's just simple faith in God's word that does the job. And we did that. We exercised faith in his word tonight. Amen. Amen. God bless you.